welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It's the 4th of September 2017, and this is episode number 30. We are back from our holidays and we resume our normal schedule of programmes. We start with an interview with military historian and presenter Andy Robertshaw. Andy, with his colleague Steve Roberts, edited an account of the Great War written by Joseph John Stewart, titled The Platoon. This was published by Pen and Sword in 2011. In this programme, I talked to Andy from his home in the south of England about this account and what it tells us about the experience of the British soldier on the Western Front during the Great War. Apologies for the sound quality in this interview, as we had some technical glitches before we started recording. Andy, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I wonder if we could start by um, giving us just a brief introduction into your background, interest and involvement in the Great War. Uh, I suppose I grew up surrounded by people who'd been in it. My maternal and paternal granddads had both been involved, one badly injured in training, the other one badly injured at the front. Grandma um, had served uh, in a munitions factory and only survived by not going to work one day when the factory blew up. Um, my granddad's auntie over the road, Auntie Lily, had a book about the First World War. I used to go over there and sit and drink lemonade and talk to her. And I asked her on one occasion why she only had one volume and it, she was buying it for her fiancé who was killed. So it was sort of current affairs when I was little. I then went on to teach in secondary schools at the Army Museum, taught about half a million young people, and then kind of a TV career came in, all based on World War One. So I just focused more and more on that war, which fascinates me anyway. And I gather you actually have reconstructed a First World War trench in your garden. Um, that's slightly wider than Mark. The Daily Mail said it was a trench in my garden. It was actually a piece of ground adjacent to the house we used to live in, so it was pretty accurate, really. Um, but we, I built that for the book 24-Hour Trench to try and show what 24 hours were like in a trench on an ordinary day. No gas attacks, no flamethrowers, no trench raids, just the mundane side of trench holding the line. Because there was nothing like that. No, and, and what we're talking about today is the book The Platoon, which was very much about the mundane daily life in the trench. Just, just the things we forget about that we don't really understand, for instance, for instance, the smell, noise, and just the tedium, and actually what you can see in a, in a trench six feet by four feet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he... Um wrote the account, I th we think, in the in the 20s or 30s, either for his son who sadly died or just after his son died. It was certainly written 20s, 30s. Um, and it seems to have been based on a notebook we don't have because it's it's very, very carefully observed, as you said. And it gives the minutiae of trench life. I mean, it's amazing. So I wonder whether we could start actually by investigating who um, Joseph John Stewart actually was. Joseph John Stewart, um, uh, when I first came across his name, I assumed he was an officer, never make that assumption. A private soldier in the civil service rifles and then translates uh, in the field to the Kensingtons, 13th London. Uh, he was basically a clerk working for a coach building company who at the time were building um, cars um, in Ballam, where I actually spent some of my life uh, living just around the corner from where he lived. 
And did, did he actually serve in the civil service or was he just affiliated to the pre-war territorial unit or did he actually join up, um, join the he 15th jo- Londons? He joined in 1915 because he knew that uh, conscription was coming in. He had a choice and he went to civil service rifles, uh, joined them in the Strand, a uh, bit of cachet about doing that. Then he was trained, went off from uh, the camp um, in uh, Hampshire, went over to France, to Rouen, Rouen to the front, and he was then dispatched as part of a draft for the Civil Service Rifles to arrive on the 1st of July 1916. It looks like every single unit got 100 men as a draft, but the Civil Service Rifles hadn't suffered heavy casualties, 13th London had, so they found themselves, all 100 of them, basically working with their new regiment um, overnight. There was no choice about it. So essentially they, they, they were dispatched as an administrative procedure to a new unit that needed them. Yeah, well, when I first came across it, I thought, oh, come on, joining a regiment on the afternoon of the 1st of July, you know, 1916, you really are pulling my plonker. But he wasn't. He, it's exactly what happened. And in fact, it's borne out by his service record. And I wonder how many people out there might look at service records and find that their relatives were part of those drafts. Because clearly the army expected casualties. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And there was something in place to ensure that that afternoon you got your reinforcements to replace the guys that weren't there from the morning. So when he arrives in the in the first Thirteenth London Regiment or Thirteenth London Battalion, what's his service over the next two years? It's pretty interesting. I mean, basically, he his account, which is semi-fictionalized, covers everything really from the latter part of the Somme or all of the Somme through the the German withdrawal. He's at Arras the following year. He then serves at Third Ypres during the Kaiserschlacht, and then they advanced to, to victory. Uh, but he chooses to, to end the book with the platoon effectively being wiped out, and that doesn't make sense historically. But it does make sense when you realise that actually he was on leave when the war ended. So he he's not a witness to what happens on the 11th of November. He comes back to find that A, he's been promoted, and B, the war's over. Um, so therefore, he just kind of makes up the last bit. And it's sort of really a bit like the end of, of All Quiet on the Western Front. You know, everybody dies. But that's not what happened to his platoon. So I think what's really interesting is, and for my reading of it, and I have to confess that my grandfather was also in the 13th London Regiment, so I've spent yeah. a bit of time researching it. And it seems to be very close to the battalion and war dynasty histories well what we did with the book is that we melded together his accounts together with the war diary and any other sources we could find because actually what he does he's for example he talks about uh, lieutenant uh, bird being killed when you look at the war diary for the period roughly that we're looking for we, we got it to an individual action actually it's lieutenant wren so his attempt to fictionalize it is is only in passing and he mentions enough real people and real events for you to realize actually I don't think he made any of it up. And there is an incident in which uh, an airman uh, crashes in no man's land, and during the action that follows, the CO is badly injured, uh, the CO of the battalion is badly injured, Um, the the regimental sergeant major gets a military cross for his bravery. All these things go on on the military medal. Um, But, of course, oddly, it's not in the book, because guess what? He was on leave. Uh, so he doesn't see it. So he's not prepared to accept third uh, party accounts of what he does. If he doesn't see it, he doesn't go in his book. 
because there's an, there's an amazing bit when he's walking up on the 1st of July and um, there's some artillerymen who say, you know, your, your unit's been cut up. I think I paraphrase. There's, yeah. a, there's actually a parallel account um, from Monday, a guy called Private Monday, who was also part of that uh, draft and he's in the Imperial War Museum and he says, you, you know, they, they're all singing the, the regimental song of the Prince of Wales, which is the 50th yeah. London. And, you know, it's amazing when you look at that and you look at the historical record, how accurate his account is. I, I, and I said, I think he had a notebook. And, and sadly, we've only now got the typescript. But the book was prepared for publication, he hoped, because his brother-in-law worked for a, a publishing company. But back in the 1960s, he couldn't get it published. And, and then he subsequently died, never saw it in print, which is really what inspired me to get it printed because or published, because clearly he wanted people to see his account. I think I think it's an amazing account. I mean, obviously, I have a family uh, connection and interest there. But how did you come across this account? Um, I, will, well, I still teach. Uh, I'm going to schools on a regular basis. And I was actually at Kent College near Canterbury. And Julian Walther, who's now the head, who was then the head of history, said, have you ever seen this? When I'd finished teaching, and it was a, a basically a, a folder with a typescript in it called the platoon. And I said, no. He said, well, why don't you borrow it? Uh, one of my colleagues said she'd like you to have a look at it. Her name's Jean Grey. And I looked at it um, that night, went online, couldn't find any officer by the name of Joseph John Stewart in the, the London Regiment and thought, well, that's a bit suspicious. Um, and then uh, next morning went into the, to the, the museum and tried to find out who, who he was. Couldn't really find him at all because apparently there was no uh, uh, record for him. And then took the decision in the old days, it was the old days, of going to the National Archive. And I found basically the microfilm copy of his service record. It's worth saying, by the way, uh, that was never transferred digitally. So if you look online, you won't find it. It was missed. I mean, we were very lucky to get it because of some, my grandfather's service record is, was destroyed, one of the ones that have gone, I'm afraid. Yeah. So yeah. why do you think this account is important and what does it say about the experience of a Tommy on the Western Front? Well, I think it, what it does it, is that it talks about the platoon uh, and the platoon is, apart from perhaps the section, the smallest subunit, but it's the building block of the battalion and it talks in terms of the comradeship and that changing personnel within this unit of about 40 people over the, the period 1916 to 1919. And I think it's something that would be recognisable too. Any man or woman had served in the military will know how important that group of mates, chums, pals, comrades is because there isn't that many of them and you know everybody by name uh, certainly if they've been with the unit any length of time. I think the other thing that struck me was that he wasn't an officer and seemed to have come from relatively humble roots. What do we know about his back? I, th I think we'd say now he, 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 his roots are working class. His dad was a leather cutter from Islington but he manages to translate himself to being a clerk uh, and then goes on to have a relatively successful life Life. I mean, he retires, um, uh, well, at the end of his life, he's living in Croydon. Um, so he's kind of moving out of London, as, as so many people do during the 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, and he actually dies in Croydon. Um, 
comfortably off, but sadly his only child, a, a boy, had died, so there, there was no heir. In what, what age did he leave school? Uh, I think he left school, look, looking at the records, around 12, possibly 13. He was a bright lad. You could leave school early if you were bright. And obviously he went straight to work as a clerk for a haberdasher's company. It looks like in Marlow to start with. Uh, so he goes off there on the Thames, and then he gradually works back towards London, ending up eventually working for a coach-building company, building car bodies, basically, um, in uh, Ballard. I think, I think something else that emerges from Stuart's account is he actually serves, he serves a long time in the front line, July 16 to October 1918. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And he's there a lot. I mean, but they are, I mean, the 56th Division are used extensively. And I mean, he actually really, to some extent, um, has a, a slight problem with the German offensive of 1918, insofar as it's not very dramatic for the unit, because they are defending um, Vimy Ridge, uh, funnily enough, from the Germans. And the Germans fail utterly to cause any damage at all, because it's just such a do- dominating position. So if you read that account, part of the account, it's kind of like the most boring account you could have of the Kaiserschlag, because they don't have to retreat or anything else they just basically beat the germans you know, yes. easily and there's some upcoming um in events that um i think would be interesting to our listeners yes i mean i've got a um a, an event coming up actually in november um, i'm just gonna make sure i get the, the date absolutely correct i need to mislead people it is in fact on the 18th of november in woking it's the light box in woking it's called a richer dust and it's a conference on the identification of human remains from battlefields conflict archaeology but i'm going as far back as neolithic and not that we identify them by names but we discover how they died uh, we're also looking at uh, casualties from the eastern front uh, from the second world war the uh, guys from the 10th essex that were found on the edge of the crater um uh, uh, close to loch nagar uh, they're being uh, that their case studies being uh, covered and i'm doing something on the ethics of identification of guys from world war one and world war two using examples from the Netherlands and the USA in addition to what we're doing. And I understand that you're also doing some work about reopening or rebuilding um, a trench. Yes, well, in fact, I'm well into this now. We're building a replica trench. Uh, we're calling it Hawthorne Trench. It's on chalk uh, soil, uh, away from the clay we worked on previously. It's in the village of Elam, uh, and that trench system will be open for visits later on in the year. We're getting ready now for some filming. There's a three-day filming uh, being being done there, but we're melding basically a film set with an accurate representation. So uh, the reason I'm sunburnt now is I spent yesterday building a, a German dugout, would you believe? And all, the, all those um, of those two events are, are all on your website. And for they our, are indeed, absolutely. And for our listeners, yep. it is... AndyRobertShaw.com. Fantastic. Andy, thanks for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.